Why not anarchism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Chris Fryman. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Chris Fryman. Chris is a graduate of Duke University, where he earned his BA in philosophy, and is a graduate of the University of Arizona, where he earned his MA and then his PhD in philosophy. He's the author of Unequivocal Justice and why it's okay to ignore politics, as well as numerous articles and book chapters. His work has appeared in venues such as the Australasian Journal of Philosophy, Philosophical Studies, Philosophy and Phenomenological Research, Utilitas, the Journal of Ethics and Social Philosophy, Politics, Philosophy and Economics, and the Oxford Handbook of Political Philosophy. A recent paper he co-authored with Jason Brennan is called Why Not Anarchism? And that will form the basis of our discussion today. Chris, welcome back to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me. It's always my pleasure. It's great to have you on, Chris. And as you know, we base each episode on a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, why not anarchism? And conveniently, what we're going to do is explore the paper of the same name that you and Jason Brennan co-authored. So before we get into the meat of the paper itself, I want to do a couple of sort of context-setting questions. First, I want to introduce the concept of working in ideal theories to those who might be unfamiliar, because that's what the paper basically does, if I understand it correctly. So could you explain as philosophers what it means for you and Jason and Brennan to be dealing with ideals and ideal theory? Because I think that really sets the stage for the rest of what we're going to be talking about. So ideal theory means different things for different philosophers, but we focus on John Rawls's version of ideal theory. And Rawls himself uses ideal theory in different ways. Uh, But the one that we really target in this paper is the idea of figuring out what society would look like if people were perfectly just. What sort of institutions would we have in that case? And now Rawls wants to uh, imagine perfectly just people as maybe uh, as just as humanly possible. So we're still subject to human limitations. Uh, For example, we don't have superhuman cognitive powers. We can't, you know, flap our arms and fly or anything like that. But just imagine that that we're sort of as motivated to do the right thing as, as humans can be. And what would a society look like if everyone were like that? Yeah. And on that point, actually, within the sort of realm of like human, like, you know, capability, as you're saying, I actually want to drill into a little further, because a couple of the times in the paper, you actually make the the distinction sort of between the ideal senses of almost like uh, just people as far as their intentions versus their actions. So I think I guess, I guess that's one good example, right? Whereas where we're thinking in ideal theory, though, at least the way you limit it, we're not saying human beings are sort of um, omniscient and fully prescient, and they understand what's going to happen, like they might make mistakes, but they're at least thinking and are trying to act just if I understand correctly correctly. Exactly. And here again, you could you could get philosophers telling you different things. But I think another way of getting at what Rawls is thinking is uh, imagine a society where nobody is acting in a blameworthy way. Mm. But of course, you can do things which you might call wrong, even if you're not blameworthy. So an example that we give in the paper is somebody really needs water. And you say, oh, sure, I'm happy to help. And you go to your refrigerator and you give them a bottle of clear liquid that is labeled water. And it just turns out that it's, it's poison right. and they die. 
Now you might say, like, oh, that, like that was the wrong thing to do. You should not have given them that bottle because it wasn't in fact water and it didn't kill them. But we we're not going to blame you for doing that because you had all the reason in, in the world to think that it was water rather than poison. And so in that case, you might say you acted wrongly, but we won't blame you for it. And that's arguably not even a moral defect in you that you made that decision. And so that's the kind of case that we're thinking about when we talk about ideal theory in Rawls's sense. So, so with that in mind as the sort of backdrop then at the highest level, because of course we'll get into very specific things in a second, but what's the paper about? What do you hope to achieve and, and what are you arguing essentially? So a lot of philosophers argue that even in a perfectly just society, even in ideal conditions, people would still need a state. They would still need this coercive, monopolistic institution to do things like enforce rules, redistribute income, provide public goods, and so on. And what Brennan and I argue is that this is, this is not the case. Uh, typically, when philosophers are making arguments for why even morally perfect people would need the state, they sneak in non-ideal assumptions. They sneak in moral failings somehow. And so if you're fully consistent in applying your idealizing assumptions, you would see that uh, there's no need for the state in ideal conditions. Now, what that implies for the real world, we just set aside. We remain agnostic on this. So the, the argument is not an argument for uh, actual anarchism, you might say. Rather, it's just the claim that if you had a society of perfectly just people, they wouldn't need a state. And, and you know, you can see how this argument might go. So you say, well, look, uh, why do we need something like tax and transfer programs to enrich the poor? And you say, well, it's because we don't expect people to give enough to charity voluntarily. But if the wealthy were perfectly just and you had an effective charity and they said, hey, look, um, you know, we need 20% of your income and we'll transfer this to people in need. If you were perfectly just, it's hard to see why you wouldn't just, you know, sign the check and, and, and hand over that money to that charity. And so you could say the redistributive functions of the state wouldn't be needed if people were perfectly just. It doesn't seem like the criminal justice dimensions of the state. That seems like an easy case. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if nobody's violating anybody's rights, which seems to follow if we're thinking about ideal conditions, why do you need criminal justice institutions? And so it, it seems like the reason why we need the state is precisely because people are not morally perfect. We're not as charitable as we should be. Sometimes we commit crimes and so on. But without those failings, no need for the state. So, so off the bat, that's the distinction between, I guess what you say in the paper, like the ideal anarchist versus ideal status. So just to crystallize this further to make sure we're, we're understanding this correctly before we move forward. So it's really that to the ideal anarchist, the state is, as I think you said in the paper, is a non-ideal institution ultimately. But to ideal status, the state is an ideal institution, like it can serve ideal functions, even with ideal actors and so on and so forth at play. It, it, exactly. So this, for, for uh, the, the group of theorists we're calling ideal statists, the state does have an important role to play, even in ideal conditions, even if people were fully just, the state would have a purpose. Got it. Okay. So then let, let's get into more of the meat of the paper here. And then when I read it, of course, I smiled to myself because... Uh, I figured where uh, where Chris Fryman or Jason Brennan are found, especially uh, along with G.A. Cohen, we were going to talk about the camping trip. So we did start there. <laughs> so the first section is uh, the anarchist camping trip, actually, of course, inspired by G.A. Cohen's camping trip discussions and so on and so forth. Actually, first, for, the, for those that might be unfamiliar, can, can you explain what Cohen's camping trip is and what he was trying to do there? And then you can talk about what, what you guys did with your anarchist camping trip and how you're sort of countering it. 
Sure. Yeah, I love this this case from Cohen. So he says, look, set aside worries about feasibility. Just ask yourself, morally speaking, what's what's more desirable, socialism or capitalism? And he argues that socialism is more desirable than capitalism. Perhaps it's not feasible. We could bracket that, return to that. But he, th- he just thinks it's better to live in accordance with socialist principles. And he motivates this idea with a camping trip where he says, well, look, or, or I guess maybe two camping trips. So one is uh, a camping trip that's governed by socialist principles. And he thinks that this is how actual camping trips tend to be run. So, you know, I don't know, you go to the campsite and yeah, one person just volunteers to chop down wood for the fire. A few other people maybe go fishing for food. Uh, if somebody forgot to bring their tent, but somebody has a spare, they'll just voluntarily give that person their spare tent. So there's a lot of sharing, there's reciprocity, there's caring for one another and so on. And Cohen says, this is the right way to do a camping trip. This is the kind of camping trip that everyone wants to go on. And then he gives us a a camping trip that's allegedly run on capitalist principles. And the idea here is, uh, you know, I don't know, somebody forgets to bring their tent and you have a spare. But rather than just being nice and altruistic and giving that person the tent, you charge them for it. Right. Or or you go fishing and you're just, you know, really skilled at fishing and I'm not. And so you catch five and I catch zero and you say, these are my fish. I'm not going to share any, or I'll charge you a, a price on them. and says, look, you could imagine a camping trip like this, but nobody would want to go on it. And so this shows that, that socialism is intrinsically better than capitalism. Now, maybe there are problems scaling up from the camping trip. So that's going to take some work, but setting that aside, he thinks that this shows that in principle, socialism is more attractive than capitalism. And now Brennan's Why Not Capitalism argues that this is not the case or the camping trip doesn't really show this. And for the record, I think Brennan is right that what Cohen does is he compares uh, ideal socialism or socialism where everyone is acting like a saint to to non-ideal capitalism uh, or or capitalism where people are just kind of mean and selfish and greedy and so on. And so he's not really showing that socialism is superior to capitalism as a way of arranging our economic institutions. He just shows that saints are are better than jerks, and well, we are we already knew that. Right. Uh, and, and so our camping trip is 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 sort of similar. It takes inspiration from Cohen's Cohen's, and it is. It seems like if we had morally perfect people on this on a camping trip, there would be no need for coercion or an institution with a monopoly on coercion. So here again, there might be rules on the campsite. Uh, but, you know, assuming that they're they're reasonable, people will voluntarily comply with them. People aren't going to be stealing other people's food uh, on a camping trip or anything like that. If somebody's in need, people will voluntarily help that person. If there are conflicts between people, say there are disagreements, on, I don't know what to do during the day, like you want to do a group activity, you can have a discussion and vote on it. And even if your side loses out, you'll you'll say, well, OK, maybe next time and you'll uh, voluntarily go along with the group in that case. And it just doesn't look like you would need anything like coercion if everybody if everybody were perfectly just. So that's the anarchist camping trip. Now, you could imagine camping trips where something like coercion is needed. Say people are constantly breaking the rules or stealing food. And then to enforce the rules, you have to give some people sticks and cages and maybe it's a kind of lord of the flies thing although right. i don't know it's been such a long time since i've read that book i don't really remember what it was like but you say okay you could imagine conditions where somebody would need something like a state on this camping trip but it seems to only be needed as a response to the moral failings of of the people 
on the trip. If people were perfect, you wouldn't need sticks. You wouldn't need gauges. So, 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 and it's with this tool and the essay that you're basically establishing that there, as far as like ideal theory is concerned, basically that again, then the anarchism could, and in fact, in your view is actually the ideal, you know, so you would, you guys would of course label yourselves as the ideal anarchist and not the status. And that's how you elaborate on that basically. Right. So the idea is that, that in ideal conditions, uh, the, the, the state is not needed. Uh, right. And so so that's why we label that position ideal ideal anarchism. And again, that's consistent with saying in the real world, we should not pursue anarchy uh, be, be precisely because we have these moral failings. Uh, but but in this scenario that Rawls is thinking about where everybody is perfectly just, it's kind of like the first camping trip. It's like, well, no, nobody's stealing anything. Nobody's hurting anyone. People are playing fair. So why would we need the state? And of course, you know, of course, there are arguments for why you would want the state in, in ideal conditions. We don't find them successful, but it does seem like the initial intuitive position is, yeah, why, why would you need an institution with a monopoly on coercion if people were morally perfect? Right. And one thing I think that's very important that you folks add, add to this section too, is that, of course, there might be some people that think, hey, well, hold on a minute, even like ideally speaking, we don't want sort of like anarchism in the sense of, you know, you get a bunch of atomized people only thinking themselves, even if they're just, how would anything get done? But I do want to note here that it's good that you bring in that important dimension to anarchism, which some people often forget when they deal with it in its sort of most vulgarized form. And I'm just going to quote you folks here in the paper. You say, to be clear, a morally good society would no doubt include institutions, roughly speaking, rules, uh, structuring social cooperation, so forth. But these institutions would not include a coercive monopolistic state. So, of course, you are taking ideal anarchism in sort of a multidimensional sense where it's ultimately non-domination and free interaction. You're not saying it's just like, hey, the only thing we're talking about is is non, non-state here. It's also about the fact people can still cooperate and so on and so forth. Right. And you could you could think about this in the camping trip context, too. So there presumably would be rules on a camping trip. Where I, I don't know. I don't really go camping. So this is I, I don't know. This is a stretch for me. But I can imagine rules on a camping trip where they say, you know, I don't know, uh, wash your own dishes or, you know, right. something like that. don't make other people do your dishes. OK, like that sounds pretty good. Uh, it's not it's not total chaos. And similarly, in the in the case of uh, an ideal stateless society, there are going to be rules. There are going to be institutions. So just to, to run with the example I gave earlier, uh, it's, it's pretty you know uh, likely that you would need institutions that help um, realize distributive justice. So you have market interactions and, and some people get, get rich and maybe some people end up uh, poor. And you say, okay, well... Uh, Ideally, just rich people will uh, share some of uh, share some of their fruits with the poor, but it doesn't really make sense for each individual person to do all of the work figuring out you know what to distribute, where to distribute, how much those sorts of things. So you could imagine charitable organizations saying, "Hey, look, we're we're going to do your do this for you. We're going to figure out you know you make this much money. Here's people who need it." Uh, will sort of uh, act as a go-between between you and them. And this way, you just cut us a check. And, let, so you know, examples from the real world are things like um, like uh, GiveWell's Maximum Impact Fund, where they say, look, if you want to do the most good possible with your charitable dollar, donate to this, and we'll do the homework for you, and we'll give it to the causes that are the most effective. And so that's great because, you know, now I don't have to do all that work. They do that work for me. 
And you could imagine similar sorts of institutions arising in ideal anarchy. So, right. So when we're talking about anarchy and ideal conditions, we're not talking about chaos. We're talking about rules and institutions. The key thing that's missing is the coercion. Right, exactly. And before I, I leave the uh, camping trip point, one other things I just want to note to our listeners that, of course, that thought experiment provides a lot of good discussion and starts off a lot of good discussions. Uh, uh, Chris just mentioned uh, Jason Brennan's Why Not Capitalism. We did have him on talk about that at a previous episode. We encourage our listeners to check out that. And we also talked with Eric Mack in a previous episode as well about Why Not Socialism, actually. So more G.A. Cohen talk there if anyone wants to check that out. So, so, so Chris, just moving on then from that camping trip and with all that uh, context setting, as, as we were discussing. So, of course, we did say at the top there, having said all that, there are those who think that even if everyone is operating with an ideal sense of justice and good, a, a state is still ideal. Uh, you first explore uh, Rawls in the paper to this effect. So uh, can you first give sort of a cursory tour of his argument before we get to your critique? So let's just talk about what Rawls is basically trying to establish. Sure. So Rawls's big worry about anarchy and ideal conditions concerns assurance problems. So the, the idea is basically this. Suppose we want uh, clean air. And, you know, I'm happy to do my part to provide clean air. So maybe I say, look, I'm worried about this. Uh, and so when I buy my next car, uh, I'm, you know, I'm tempted to buy an electric vehicle rather than a gas guzzling SUV. But then I, I pause and I think to myself, huh, um, that, that might cost me some more money to go all electric. And so, so that, that's a personal cost if I do it. And like individually, my purchase of an electric car is not going to make a big difference to the overall state of the air. We need lots and lots of people to do it. And so I actually don't know what choices other people are going to make at the car dealership. And so I don't want to have to spend extra money getting an electric vehicle if I'm the only one who's making that sacrifice. I'm happy to make the sacrifice, but only if other people do their part too. But the problem is I don't know if they're doing their part. You might go to the the car dealership and get the gas guzzler, and then I get the uh, um, electric vehicle. And so in some sense, my, my contribution is going exploited or it's, it's, it's been exploited. It's, it's going unreciprocated. And so Rawls says, here's what, and, and that's, not a, that's not really a moral failing for Rawls. It's more like an unwillingness to be exploited where it's like, hey, I'm willing to do my part so long as others do theirs. Okay. He, he says that ideal people are conditional cooperators. So the idea is I'm not going to cooperate no matter what and let other people take advantage of the work that I do. I'm going to cooperate, assuming that other people cooperate as well. And, and that all strikes me as, as pretty reasonable. But since I can't really tell if you're cooperating or not, what we need is something like the state that just says, you got to buy an electric vehicle or something like that. And so that way, when I go to the car dealership and I buy the electric vehicle, it's like, okay, now I know everybody else is doing it. And my contribution is not going unreciprocated. So according to Rawls, even if there are no moral failings, there's this important role for the state in securing this assurance that everyone is doing their part. Mm -hmm. And then now let's talk about why you think ultimately that that approach doesn't work. So I think there are a couple of reasons to be skeptical of this. One is that it's not clear that a, uh, an assurance problem doesn't arise in Rawls's scenario as well. So think about voting. Voting is costly. 
Uh, and informed voting is even costlier. So maybe you need to figure out what the, you know, what the best policy for clean air is or which candidate uh, is going to enact that policy of, of the, you know, the various candidates that you could vote for. That takes time. And so you might say, uh, I'm not going to put in that time if I don't have assurance that everybody else is going to put in that time. For the same reason, I don't want to buy the electric car unless I get assurance that everybody else is buying the electric car. And so Rawls kind of has a dilemma here, because if he says, well, no, we can count on people making these voluntary contributions, voting, even though they don't have this assurance that their vote will uh, not go unreciprocated, then he kind of loses his original rationale for the state. Because then I could just say, well, look, uh, people are going to buy the electric vehicle without the guarantee of reciprocation. And so I think this is one problem with his argument, is that it seems like it just recreates the problem without mm-hmm. a solution. Uh, the, the other argument that we give in the paper is, it's not obvious that we can't solve this problem via non-coercive means. So we talk about assurance contracts and, and dominant assurance contracts in particular. So these are basically, I don't know, Kickstarter, I think, is is still a thing. Um, I think. I, think I, it, I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it peaked at one point, but uh, maybe it's fading. But, the uh, you know, so I remember it from you know, bands, I think, trying to raise money where they would say something like, okay, you know, contribute this. And if enough other people contribute, we'll take your money and like send you the first copies of the album or something like that. And so the idea is, you know, I I pledge 50 bucks and if they get, I don't know what the number, $10,000 or something like that, $10,000 in contributions, then they will in fact take my 50 bucks along with everyone else's to get to the 10,000 or whatever the, the total is. Um, but then they'll give you the, the benefit and return. And the idea is that this can solve the problem because they say, look, um, I'm not worried about my contribution going unreciprocated because if I give the $50 and nobody else contributes, then the $50 comes back to me. I only lose it in the event that everybody else uh, reciprocates. And so it seems like we could use something like this in, in ideal conditions to overcome the assurance problem without coercion, especially because Rawls says, look, people want to cooperate contingent upon other people cooperating as well. So when I see the, I don't know, I get the email from, you know, I don't know, the, the clean air organization. And they say, you know, please contribute your share of $100 to this new carbon capture project. We need a million dollars in donations. Uh, you know, if we reach the million dollars, then we will, in fact, charge you the hundred bucks. If we don't, we won't. Well, then, of course, I click yes. Uh, you know, here's my, here's my credit card info because I want to cooperate. Uh, assuming it's not going to get exploited. And I don't have to worry that it will get exploited because if not enough other people contribute, then I just get the money back. And so it seems like Rawls overlooks ways in which non-governmental mechanisms can solve the assurance problem. Right. And and, and when I was reading through that too, like I, I did think of sort of modern tech examples to like Kickstarter and so on and so forth. And my initial thought was like, you know, obviously, you know, perhaps that kind of stuff didn't enter Rawls's head because he didn't, you know, live till 2022 to see all this stuff. But then I thought, well, hold on a minute. There's been systems like that of assurance that have been existing for a while, socially speaking, like, like, you know, um, you know, millionaires like using what I guess you could call like the pledge system, for instance, to encourage other folks and so on and so forth. And, and if we assume in, in an ideal circumstance, 
circumstances, everyone's going to follow through with their pledge. Of course, people could signal to each other they're going to pledge and, and move on with it. So it seems like the, the sort of marketplace of association in that ideal scenario could still take care of, of a lot of these objections, at least to me. Yeah, so, right. So it might be easier now. It seems like it definitely is easier now. But right, it, it doesn't depend on the current state of technology. So I'm right. not going to I won't be too hard on Rawls for this point. Uh, you know, maybe maybe I should be hard on on Rawlsians today who don't talk about the Kickstarter arguments. But right. Rawls himself, maybe I'll let off the hook. Right. Fair enough. <laughs> and and actually, you know what? I was going to move us on to the, the next argument in the paper, but it is about that time that we're going to take our break, anyways. So we'll do that right now. So everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Chris Fryman today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Rosa Pagliarello, Danny Leroy, and Andy Crooks. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Chris Fryman today. So, Chris, I think the first half uh, was great. We covered sort of the context for the your your and Jason Brennan's paper, uh, why not anarchism. We also uh, talked about the first set of discussion in that paper, which was covering John Rawls' arguments and your, and your critiques of of the discussion at hand. Um, let, let's move on actually to the second sort of chunk of the paper, if you will. You also cover some arguments and discussion from David Eslund. Did I actually pronounce that right first? Maybe is is that it, Eslund? Okay, great. Yeah, Eslund. Awesome. Yep. So, can, can you again first? Discuss Describe David Eslin's uh, argument as far as his ideas and so on and so forth, and then we'll get to your critiques of it. Same sort of cycle. Right. So Eslin makes the case for uh, thinking about morality without making concessions to certain kinds of, of human failing. So this is another kind of ideal theory. So you can you can motivate this idea with a case. So maybe you say, uh, you know, you, you promised to pick me up today at one o'clock and you never did it and you were obligated to do it. And I say, yeah, you know, I don't know. I was just feeling lazy. I was feeling selfish. I didn't want to do it. That's a failing on my part. That doesn't somehow uh, mean that I didn't have the obligation to make good on my promise and pick you up. I had the obligation to do that. So I I might say, ah, I'm not going to do that. But that's very different from saying, I, I, therefore, I shouldn't do it. I have no obligation to do it. And so, the, you know, a lot of theorizing about political philosophy maybe makes concessions to, to human failings in, way that it, in a way that it shouldn't. So an example of this, uh, according to certain theories of justice, you might say, look, it's, it's unfair uh, if, if somebody makes a ton of money, uh, whereas other people don't make nearly as much. And maybe they make a ton of money simply via luck. Uh, so they were born in the right place or with certain sorts of marketable talents or whatever the case may be. They, they make a ton of money. Uh, other people don't have nearly as much money. And so perhaps justice requires that those with more give to, to those with less or something like that. You could say, OK, um, well, this might be a rationale for uh, you know, taxing those people who have a lot. Uh, but there's a kind of a curious feature of this, which is, and this kind of relates to uh, an earlier uh, point that we were discussing. You might say, look, um, if somebody says, uh, you got to take that money from me coercively 
and give it to the poor. It looks like that tax is motivated by a kind of moral failing on that person's part. If you're assuming this egalitarian conception of justice, which maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. But it seems like saying, oh, the, the tax is, is justified as part of an ideal structure uh, is in fact not exactly the case. Uh, because if we weren't making any concessions to, to human moral failings, we would say that person should give their money to the poor. And now that person might say, I'm not gonna, I'm too selfish, I want the money, you gotta take it from me via taxation. Okay, fair enough. Um, but that's a, that, that doesn't imply that the person doesn't have that obligation right. to, to be more egalitarian. And so the idea here is that when we're thinking about like what justice really requires, we shouldn't make concessions to people who say, I'm just too lazy. I'm just too selfish. Uh, we should imagine that we're not making these sorts of concessions to our moral failings. And now, you know, Esland argues that even in uh, in this kind of non-concessive moral theory, we would we would need a state. But here again, this is something that Brennan and I challenge in the paper. Right. And, and let's connect right into that thing, because it seems like one of at least one of your problems and critiques of, of these arguments is that ultimately it, it always ends up tumbling into describing non-ideal circumstances and people anyway, if I understood correctly. Right, exactly. So Esland gives this case where, you know, you can imagine an, a, a town uh, and there are two, uh, I think they're, they, they run supermarkets, these two competitors who run supermarkets. And one of the owners is kind of seen leaving the other one's supermarket right before it catches fire. And people suspect this person of arson. And so they, they do all these mean things to, these, to, to this person. Uh, and so, like, we would need to have political institutions uh, to, to, you know, run a fair trial, maybe protect this person and so on. And the first thing that Brennan and I note in response to this case is, well, this doesn't really seem like uh, a scenario with morally perfect people. It seems like you have people who are mean, they're jumping to conclusions, they're willing to violate other people's rights. And if we were really morally perfect, this sort of situation wouldn't arise. You might say, oh, you know, there's probably a really good explanation for this thing I just saw. Let me talk to the parties. I'm certainly not going to rush to judgment and so on and so forth. And so one of the cases that Esland gives to motivate the need for the state just seems like it relies on people not behaving in a morally good way. Now, a, a response to that argument, which we consider is, well, you could imagine that there's still a need for us to resolve disputes, even if people aren't mean. There can be honest disagreements, and we need to resolve those. Uh, and that's where the need for the state arises. So an argument that I sometimes give, I don't think it made it into the paper, is uh, you know playing basketball. So you play basketball, and maybe you say, okay, here's the rule. Call your own fouls. <laughs> you say, okay, like that can be fine, but every, and this is sort of a, a Lockean point. Uh, you don't have to be morally bad, but you might be kind of biased in your own favor. So when somebody kind of gets you a little too hard, you say foul, uh, you get them a little too hard, you don't think it's a foul. Is that a moral failing? Arguably not a moral failing. This is just, you know, this is the way we are mm -hmm. as human beings. And so you could imagine uh, other sorts of scenarios like that arising. So you say in the basketball case, you need a referee. You don't want to call your own fouls because you can have honest disagreements and it just functions a lot more smoothly if you have a neutral third party. And similarly, uh, you know, even among people who aren't morally bad, you could have honest disagreements. So, uh, you know, I don't know. You think this person was trespassing. This person claims that they weren't. It's not because you're bad people, you know, 
You just have honest disagreements. And if you try to sort it out yourselves, you're going to be biased. There, there are going to be problems. So you need this neutral third party uh, to adjudicate the conflict, and that's the state. Now, our response to this is, well, you can have neutral third parties without the state. Right. Uh, and, and in fact, it seems like if we had morally perfect people, these these third parties would would work quite well. So one of the examples we give is private arbitration in baseball. Team can't agree on the proper salary for the player. The player disagree. Like you know, they have different views. You're gonna make it might not be morally bad. They just have genuine differences of opinion about what this person should be paid. Say so, okay, we'll submit it to a private arbitrator and we'll uh, agree to abide by their ruling. It seems like in a world of morally perfect people, this would be plenty uh, to adjudicate these sorts of honest disputes. Whether it's enough in the real world, that's a separate question. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We're agnostic about that. But it really just seems like if everybody is morally good, including the arbitrator, you don't need a state to fulfill this function. Right. And we sort of see a pattern here between, and that's not the exact same thing, but, you know, there's a little overlap, I think, between sort of the kind of thing Rawls is talking about with assurances and also the kind of thing Esalen's talking about here as, as far as, as as the way you described it. it. It seems that a lot of the folks that are skeptical of even like anarchy and ideal conditions seem to have in mind, again, like like a thin sort of idea that anarchy is, is exactly, so, you know, just not the state and people aren't going to form sort of rules and, you know, social institutions and, and, uh, and you know, other means of you know arbitrating disputes and so on and so forth and again i I never want to be too flippant in my own thinking and say ah they just seem to think that but but i do see that pattern emerging that it's sort of a very you know thin conception of of the ideal anarchism to basically say well you know we we need uh some sort of dispute resolution here for example therefore the state like that's a bigger leap to me that's right so one of the strategies that we pursue in this paper is just to show that in a lot of these cases you can have non-coercive institutions performing the the exact same function as the state and so and really what's distinctive about the state what what differentiates it from other institutions is this monopoly on coercion and so the question is to what extent is coercive doing or coercion doing the job versus something else so dispute resolution Need not be coercive. So we'll, I, you know, we'll talk about Kafka, where he thinks coercion is going to play this really important role in dispute resolution. Right. But in in principle, you can have dispute resolution without coercion, and so it's not clear that the state, in particular, this coercive institution, is needed to resolve disputes as opposed to a non-coercive institution. Right. And let, let's do exactly as you said. Let's move on to Gregory Kafka. So again, uh, the last one we'll do the same cycle, but I do think it's very helpful. Uh, let's again have you describe his arguments, and then we'll also uh, have you uh, talk about what you folks critique about them. Right. So, so Kafka he says some things that are in in some ways similar to the to the Eslin scenario, which is you know you could even imagine. Uh, that people are morally perfect in the sense that they're not doing anything morally blameworthy, but nevertheless having honest moral disagreements. So part of this might just be disagreements about the facts. So you could imagine, for example, so you know you have two utilitarian people, for example, and so maybe they even agree that the morally right thing to do is that which produces the best consequences. But they have different empirical beliefs, which lead them to different beliefs about what we should do. So maybe one thinks, uh, I don't know, capital punishment maximizes utility. The other one doesn't because they have different understandings of the relevant empirical evidence. Mm. That's not morally blameworthy, um, but it could definitely lead to a conflict. Uh, 
And so Kafka says, okay, first things first, you could imagine a scenario where people are morally blameless. So in that respect, they're so morally perfect, perhaps. And they still have these, these really serious moral disagreements. Now, one option is just this, this idea that we were talking about a minute ago, where, well, they'll, they'll peacefully resolve any sort of, of dispute that they have. They'll, they'll talk it out, maybe they'll vote on it, and they'll agree to abide by the results of the vote or something like that. Says, oh, maybe that's true in some cases, uh, but it's not really clear that that's always going to be true. Um, you could certainly imagine somebody who is so committed to a particular moral belief or a particular you know, position on an issue that they're just not willing to compromise, that they say, I care more about this, whatever that happens to be, than peacefully compromising with other people. And then it seems like there's a role for the state in these sorts of cases, particularly if you have those sorts of people on both sides of an issue. One side says, I'm digging in my heels. I'm not compromising. The other side says, same here. Okay, now I got a problem. And the idea is that you need the state to say, okay, what, maybe we take a vote. Who knows? We figure out some way to, to have a solution to this conflict and we enforce it. Mm. And so whether, whether you like it or not, we will, we will force you to you know, abide by these terms. And Esalen thinks this is a role for the state. And this is, more, this, this is a role for coercion in particular, uh, because they might say in the arbitration case, uh, even if somebody comes down on one side rather than, than another, the, the losing side might say, well, we're going to keep fighting anyway. And this is why you have to have the state to, to essentially overpower uh, one of the sides and enforce a solution. And so this is why he thinks even among morally blameless people, there would be a need for the state. And of course, um, I guess that's where the sort of the idea of the, the angels who never compromise sort of turn of phrase comes into play, right? So, right. so ultimately, how, uh, what's, your, what's your focus critique on, on this sort of thing? So one initial point is it's just not obvious to us that this kind of personality he's describing really is morally blameless. Mm. So if you have someone who says, hmm, this other side uh, is, you know, is morally good, like they're trying really hard, they're trying to be fair, um, they're trying to see it from from my side, and they come up with a different opinion than I do. But you know what? Uh, I'm just going to run roughshod over them, even so. That's not obviously a morally good disposition to have. It seems like maybe an ideal person in that scenario would say, hmm, I'm like, uh, you know, I'm potentially resorting to violence to enforce my view on this other person, this other person who is just as morally good as I am. You might take a step back and go, hmm, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. So that's just an initial critique. It's not obvious to us that uncompromising angels are really angels after all. But set that aside, maybe, maybe you don't, don't quite buy that. That could be fair. Um, our basic response to Kafka is similar to our response to Rawls, which is just his proposed solution uh, falls prey to the original problem but in a different way. So to take a really simple example, so suppose you have these, these moral angels and they have this disagreement and they both dig in their heels and they say, we don't care about peaceful compromise. We just care about getting our own way. Okay, uh, why not think that they're going to fight for control of the state in that case? So an example that we give in the, in the paper is say, suppose the, the uncompromisers are can, you know, in conflict over uh, what public schools should teach. 
some of them say secular stuff. Uh, some of them say religious stuff. Well, now they're going to have this big political fight over uh, what what sort of uh, material to teach in in schools. Um, and when there's a political apparatus that's an enforce that's enforcing a solution to this conflict, it seems like they're going to fight over control of the apparatus, uh, over who gets control of the state. Uh, and so it's just not clear that this is actually going to reduce uh, sort of violent conflict compared to a situation where there is no state. I mean, even to take a really sort of concrete, vivid example, suppose you say, okay, we, 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 you know, we hold this election or something like this, or we, we have a vote on what to teach in, in public schools, for example, and one side loses. Well, remember, they're uncompromising. They don't care about peaceful compromise. So why would they abide by the, the outcome of this vote? Why wouldn't they violently contest the results if they're this unwilling to compromise? So our basic argument against Kafka is, look, if you really take this idea seriously, that they're so committed to their principles, that they value them above peaceful compromise, why think that the state is going to solve this problem? It seems like it just moves the conflict to a different stage. Right. And and moving on to sort of like wrap up some a couple of key thoughts in, in the paper as, on top of those sort of like key meat of the matter sections, if you will, uh, you know, I, a couple of times in the paper, you talk about even if there's a tie between what appears to be a, a quote win for ideal anarchism, and even if you grant ideal statism could be ideal, for example, the edge should go to anarchism either way. Can you, can you explain a bit about that thought process too? Sure. So maybe you just heard some of my arguments and you think, oh, okay, I can I can kind of see how assurance contracts might solve the problem, or I can see how the state might actually make conflict worse rather than better, but it's speculative. It's just really hard to tell. So maybe it, maybe the state isn't needed, but but maybe it really is, and it's it's hard to know at this point. Um, we say, okay, that that's fair. Um, but if we're uncertain in a case like this, we argue that the tie should go to to anarchism, and the reason is because we think there's there's a moral presumption against using coercion, and this is actually a fairly common thought in the liberal tradition. So Rawls, for example thinks this, that just all else equal, it's better not to coerce people into doing stuff. You can, um, but the presumption is against it. You need, a, you need a really good reason. And the idea here is just, I mean, so, you know, that lots of reasons why there might be a moral presumption against coercion. But the, the explanation that we talk about in the paper is just this idea that, um, it, that this presumption against coercion is vindicated by the moral equality of persons. When I coerce you, when I say, I want you to do this, and you say, I don't want to, and I say, too bad, I'm going to force you to do it anyway, I am basically subordinating your will to my will. Mm -hmm. And if we're moral equals, it's really hard to see why I would be justified in doing that. And again, this is not to say that coercion is never justified, but that the presumption is against it. You need a really strong reason. And so if you think that the debate between anarchism and statism in ideal conditions results in a kind of stalemate. And you're like, oh, I'm not really sure. I would say, okay, well, the tie goes to the non-coercive option, which is uh, anarchism rather than statism. Right. And just to carry that thought a little more forward to, to make a sort of concluding point, that sort of brings us back to the front of the discussion about, you know, where ideal theory sort of ends, if you will, and where you get into the quote, the real world. So the only time you'd give the edge, to, if you will, to the state is really 
in, in, uh, in, in your mind when you actually leave the ideal then. So as you said, you give the edge to anarchism in a tie. You also think all these other arguments don't work. So if someone said to you, so, so Chris, then when would we need a state? It, it's, it seems to be the simple answer as well when we talk about the real world, for example. We won't get all into that today, but the idea is in the ideal realm, forget about it kind of thing when it comes to a state. That, that's right. And it is, it's a kind of a funny thing when you say it out loud, it's, you know, when you, it, it's, you know, natural to talk that way to philosophers, but when you talk to non-philosophers and you say, when would you need the state? And I go, Oh, well, when you're talking about the real world, go, yeah. Okay. That seems important. Uh, but, but right. So it, you know, our, our argument is that in the, the ideal world that we do not occupy doesn't need a state. Uh, but of course we don't live in that world. So, for example, uh, you know, we can't always count on people being willing, uh, willing to contribute their fair share or donate enough to charity or not violate the rights of other people. When we're in the real world, clearly we're not morally perfect. And so we say, OK, well, now now a role opens up for the state. Now, of course, it's not a slam dunk argument because you say, well, OK, like. People, you know, non, uh, non-ideal agents are, are not perfectly just in the real world, which implies that real world state actors are themselves also not perfectly just. And so you say, OK, it's, it, that now it becomes complicated and you've got to do, the, you know, empirical stuff and figure out uh, the costs of state coercion versus the benefits and so on. Um, so, it, 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 you know, it, it's, it becomes very, very complicated once you leave the ideal world where you can just stipulate, this is how people are going to behave because they say so. It's my paper. This is how they work. In the real world, it's much more complicated. So really, I think uh, our paper doesn't really yield any clear conclusions for, for the real world. It says, uh, in an ideal world, there would be no need for the state. What that means for the here and now in a world with injustice, we can't really say. That's, and that's not even a philosophical question. Uh, it's partly a philosophical question, but you got to learn a lot of other stuff to figure out what the proper role of the state is in the real world. Right. And thinking through the ideals is still very helpful, too, because as you said, once we do sort of, uh, you know, tread into the real world discussions or actually existing world or however you want to term it, people do need to tread very carefully, too, because often what they end up doing is saying, oh, OK, in the real world, here's how my solutions ideally work with these ideal politicians. So that's a whole other set of confusion, too. So people do need to get serious about okay well everything's the real world now right we're leaving we're leaving ideal theory that's exactly right um so so my my view is if you want to do ideal theory that's cool but be ideal across the board if you want to do real world that's cool but let's do real world across the uh, the board i think it's james buchanan who who said something like economists need to stop acting like they're giving advice to benevolent despots right something and i think that's that's exactly right if you're talking about real world problems, then don't, you know, don't imagine that the people who are tasked with solving these problems are not of the real world, but of the, the ideal world. No, keep it all real world if that's what you're doing. If you want to do ideal world stuff, that's great. I'm a philosopher. I love it. That's cool. Um, but once you move to the real world, you got to keep it consistent. Don't have the double standard. Absolutely. And and with that, Chris, I'd like to move us to our sort of formal wrap-up. As you may recall, last time we were chatting, we want to make sure that ultimately the guest has the last word to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me sort of officially ask you here the the last question. What do you hope are ultimately 
the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what they should consider when it comes to ideal anarchism. In other words, if you wanted someone to leave our conversation today with just one, two, or a few takeaways, if anything, what would that ultimately be? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. So I think one one sort of general point is just how a lot of the existing arguments for statism, uh, like I said, sort of sneak in non-ideal assumptions, uh, which uh, they shouldn't be doing given that they purport to do ideal theory. But also to this point that you mentioned earlier, and I think that this relates to the question of, of ideal theory, there are lots of things that... Um, you know, we we might want the state to do or institutions to do that don't really have anything to do with coercion. And so we shouldn't be quick to assume that just because the state currently does X, that the state is always the institution that is in fact best positioned to do X. What the state is, is monopolized coercion. And so there can be a role for that, of course, but that's really what makes it distinctive. A lot of the other stuff that the state does could perhaps be done even better by by non-political institutions. And we have to evaluate that on a case-by-case basis. It's it's complicated. Uh, But we shouldn't just assume that, well, the state does this, therefore the state ought to do this. That's much too quick. Right. I think that's a great place to leave it. So, Chris Fryman, thank you very much for joining me again on The Curious Task. Thank you. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segang. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.